Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And in our last episode, we talked about the multiple times during Queen Victoria's early reign that a young man named Edward Jones, who was referred to in the press as the Boy Jones, uh, managed to get into Buckingham Palace and wander around and basically be super creepy. Uh, when we left off, he had been found a third time in Buckingham Palace, though he claimed to have been there more than that, and he was serving a sentence of hard labor for it. We're going to jump right back in where we left off. So if you have not listened to that first part, you probably want to do that now uh, before you get into this one or this will not make sense. Yep. I mean, you might just try to glean everything from context, but it's a lot easier if you listen to the first one. Yeah. So, as we mentioned at the end of that first part, he was commonly called the Boy Jones in the press, and he had become kind of a sensation because of his criminal activity, because he had managed to enter the palace so many times, but never seemed to cause physical harm to anybody. A lot of people were really fascinated by him and seemed to see him as this, like, impish hero of the working class messing with the privileged royals. Although, to be clear, he was creepy. He was sleeping under people's beds and eavesdropping on private conversations and stealing personal items. So we are not at all saying that he was heroic. No. Some people sort of painted him that way at the time, but no. Like, that's reprehensible and gross. Uh Members of the press were so eager to have any word about Edward that reporters would often buy his father, Henry Jones, drinks in the hopes that he would become inebriated enough to give them unfiltered details about Edward and what he was doing during this hard labor imprisonment. Many people actually applied for permission from the prison to visit the boy Jones for interviews. One of those people just sort of famously was Charles Dickens. After Edward Jones was released from his second prison sentence on June 14th, 1841, he often was recognized in the street. He became the subject of songs and poems and this ongoing stream of satirical articles that had been part of his story from the first time he had been discovered in the palace. But apparently he didn't actually like all this attention. He couldn't go out in public without a crowd forming behind him to follow his every move, and it became so irritating that he gradually went out less and less. So when a journalist approached him about putting together a book, uh, because Edward had claimed that he was working on a book the last time that he was arrested and that he was trying to get information by eavesdropping on the royal family for that book, It turned out that the boy Jones was not interested in this project. Uh, This was, of course, a disappointment to the writer and to Edward's father, uh, as the two men had been discussing the project and how much a little money from something like this could really help the Jones family. They were basically destitute. They had never been wealthy, but as they were paying back a pretty sizable loan that they had taken out to cover the lawyer's fees from Edward's first trial, they were living in complete poverty. So while Edward's refusal to cooperate with this potential ghostwriter definitely impacted his family's finances, it did not stop the writer from going ahead with the project on his own. Under the pen name of Paul Pry the Elder and claiming to be an editor on Edward's book project, he wrote and published an account of Edward's time in Buckingham. Cobbled together from actual newspaper reports, rumor, and things entirely made up. 
Yeah. And this book was short. It was just 32 pages. And it was published in July of 1841. So right after he got out, it was very hastily thrown together with the title Royal Secrets or A Pry in the Palace. And the original plan for the title had been A Night Under the Queen's Bed. But it was changed over concerns that that might be going too far. Uh, so this is where you can feel like uh, you can join us in an eye roll because, of course, making up stuff is not going too far at all, apparently, but that title might have been. In that short month between Edward's release and this unauthorized book being published, Joan had already struggled to return to anything like a normal life. In addition to the curious public, he was often followed by the police, who had been uh, understandably instructed to keep an eye on him. And his father was trying desperately to turn the situation into a source of income. Henry Jones allegedly took money from people to give them a peek at his son, and he and his wife tried to accept offers for Edward to appear on stage, but Edward shut them down. Yeah, it's one of those things uh, I actually feel really bad for his father, even though he's trying to monetize the situation, because he really is just trying to feed the family, it seems. Uh, I don't know. Well, I similarly feel, okay, his behavior is reprehensible. I simultaneously feel bad for him. Yeah. And like those two things are possible feelings to have at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It's a very conflicted thing. Uh, But then an escape from the life of scrutiny, which was also a job opportunity, was offered to the boy Jones from an unlikely friend. The family's landlord, William James, offered to help Edward get a position aboard a ship called Diamond. James knew the captain and was willing to pay for the needed uniform and preparation for him to take the young man on as an apprentice. And for Henry Jones's part, he was really suspicious of this. This is kind of where I I can't help but feel sort of bad and some compassion for Henry Jones, because while he was willing to try to work out some financial stuff, he was really worried about his son's well-being in many regards, uh, because he thought it seemed really odd that his landlord, who had historically been pretty unkind to his family and a complete stranger, Captain Taylor, were going to offer all of this help suddenly to Edward. But just the same, he allowed James to take Edward to meet with Captain Taylor, and Edward never came home. What happened at that point is, of course, extremely murky. When Henry Jones attempted to inquire after his son and the landlord, who hadn't come back either, he got nowhere. Mr. James, he was told, was expected to be away for some time. And questions he asked the local shipping office about the diamond didn't get back very hopeful answers either. The diamond had left for Cork, and it was not expected to come back. Almost immediately, rumors began to swirl and articles began to, to appear about what might have happened to the boy Jones. While kidnapping or some other foul business was suspected in some of the speculation, the more common story was that the government had apprehended him with the intent to simply erase this problem of this person that had seemed kind of obsessed with the queen and that just made everyone uneasy. There had been a very real fear that while Edward's appearances in Buckingham had never been violent, he could use his uncanny ability to one day break into the palace again with more sinister or violent ideas. 
Henry Jones and his wife actually received a letter ostensibly from Edward saying that he was fine, that he was in Cork, Ireland, and that he was starting a career at sea. But the language was so unlike that of their son that they didn't actually believe it was real. We are going to talk about what really happened to Edward Jones in a moment. But first, how would you like to pause for a sponsor break? That sounds like a grand plan. Know what I am not doing right now? What? Uh, working on on the travelogue that that we are writing, my my husband and I, about our uh, our honeymoon. Yeah, but when we do do that, <laughs> <laughs> but when we stop playing video games and do that, uh, it is going up on our Squarespace site that we have loved so much, that helped us so much with all of our wedding planning, uh, with putting up our video of our wedding. With having, uh, we do have a little gallery of honeymoon pictures on there. Fun. We, we plan to write some more about the honeymoon, all the places we went, uh, and put that on there. And we know that when we do, total confidence based on everything so far, it will be an easy, fun process. <laughs> we just gotta stop being lazy. Uh, so Squarespace is easy to use. You can create a web space that's simple and intuitive. Uh, as far as the tools that you're using, you can add and arrange your content and your features with a click of a mouse. If you're doing something and you're not quite sure how to make it work, there is a lot of documentation and support to help you out. I had this experience when I was putting up our little gallery of honeymoon pictures and I couldn't figure out how quite to make it look like I wanted. Uh, and a very simple search and, and read, read the tutorial process helped me out. And then suddenly it was the easiest thing. I just say their uh, little tutorials that they offer that you can just click through are really well done. Yeah. Like they are clear communicators. Yep. So if you sign up for a year, you get a custom domain free for a year. There are beautiful templates to choose from. Really seamless commerce tools if that's what you are working on with your website. And then there's 24-7 customer support. So if that tutorial that you tried was not quite enough for you, there's going to be somebody that you can chat with. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. So to get back to Edward Jones, it turns out each of the theories that we talked about before the break were true. The authorities did want to ship Edward Jones away, and to make that happen, they had employed his landlord as an agent, which explains the sudden change of demeanor toward the Jones family. And he, along with the police inspector named Evans, who was posing as a shipping clerk, were charged with getting the young man onto a boat going far, far away. But when Captain Taylor of the Diamond realized that the person that he was being paid to take on was the Queen's now celebrity stalker, he wanted nothing to do of it. Do with it. He backed out of the deal, and he was apparently pretty angry that anyone would deign to push a criminal off on his ship. James and Evans couldn't take Jones back to London, so they did two things. First, they paid another young man who was emigrating on the diamond to pretend to be the boy Jones and spread all kinds of stories about his time in the palace to make it seem to hire authorities that the two men had successfully carried out their mission. This actually worked all the way to Australia, where the diamond was headed when it left Britain, but the young man was found out a few weeks after they docked there. 
Yeah, he he kept it up for a good long while. Uh, Second, they ran all over the coast of Britain trying to find any captain who would take Edward off their hands. They figured like they had their story locked down in terms of this other person they had paid to pretend to be Edward. But now they actually had to still get rid of Edward. They couldn't really bring him anywhere or bring him back home. They were surprised at how problematic this actually was. But eventually, in Liverpool, they were able to find a captain that was willing to take him, although they disguised Edward to hide his identity and just kind of keep the Boy Jones uh, fanfare out of it. So he boarded a ship named the Tiber, which was headed to Brazil. I'm kind of astonished that they were surprised at how much trouble they were having. I mean, they're basically like, hey, hey, sea captain, we have this extrajudicial kidnapping that we would like you to help us with. Are you okay? You know, it seems like their problem was not that. Their problem was more like, we don't want this dude on our ship. That too. And it indicates there's some interesting uh, indication about sort of how uh, the police at this point and the government maybe were viewing people who make their livings at sea as being a little unscrupulous and totally would be fine with all of this. But of course they were not. <laughs> So another letter that was supposedly sent from Edward was sent to the Joneses at about this time. And as with the first, it claimed that he was well and went on to say that he was setting out to sea. It also went on at length about what a great guy William James was. And again, this did not seem to be like a genuine letter from Edward when reviewed by his family. Yeah, it's really, it lays it on so thick about how great the landlord is. It's like, he's just the best, you guys. He's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Which would just never have been the case. Uh, Mr. James did finally return home in August, but he refused to answer any questions put to him by Henry Jones about where Edward had gone. Desperate, Henry went to the papers, and this started a flurry of back and forth among various publications. Tory papers really wanted to put out how unsettling it was that authorities could just make someone disappear this way. Their intent was to rile up the Whig prime minister and advisor to the queen, Lord Melbourne. This seemed, they seemed to be on a crusade to expose the truth of abuse of power. And Melbourne lost the election that year and was replaced by Tory Sir Robert Peel. When it turned out that Peel wasn't interested in revealing any information about where the boy Jones had gone, the press about the matter quickly dropped off. Yeah, they didn't want to criticize uh, a guy that was in their camp, but so Edward Jones kind of stopped being an important story to them all of a sudden. Uh, several months after Edward vanished, he reappeared by way of a letter to the Jones family, which had been posted from Liverpool. And it said that he had been to Brazil and back, that he absolutely hated his time at sea, that he had been treated very poorly, and that he was now stranded and needed money to get home to London. And unlike the previous letters, this one really did seem to be Edward's actual writing and actual words. Henry Jones did not have the money to send to Edward, so he started asking around with friends and neighbors for financial help. But in the meantime, Edward had decided not to wait around for this money, and he set off on foot. From Liverpool to London, as the crow flies, is about 200 miles, or 322 kilometers, and it took him more than two weeks. 
uh, I feel like that's a pretty good time. He made it on December 18th of 1841, although he was in pretty bad shape when he got home. He had basically subsisted on a small amount of bread that he had been able to purchase uh, and then raw turnips that he was able to dig up from the ground along the way. If you have ever tried to eat a raw turnip, that is a rough way to eat. That's a rough way to sustain yourself. Uh, and man, 200 miles on foot. That's, that's a, a long of, way. That's a lot of walking. Uh, of course, the press once again erupted in a flurry of stories about the boy Jones when he suddenly arrived back in London. Some were full of outrage at what had happened to him, but others seemed actually pretty irritated that this criminal element was back in London. Edward, through his father's arrangement, got a job as an errand runner by a tobacconist Mr. named Mr. Elgar on a 12-month agreement, and things seemed like they were going pretty well, although Edward was constantly afraid that he was being watched. And then on February 4th, 1842, after running home in the morning to change into a clean shirt, he vanished again. Yeah, he had gotten home, checked in with his mom, she gave him a clean shirt, he never made it back to work. Uh, the following week, both Henry Jones and the tobacconist received letters about the young man's whereabouts. Henry's was written, it claimed, by a sea captain that Edward was setting sail with, as he had not been happy in his work. This was, in fact, not the case. He had actually been, for the first time probably in his life, pretty happy in a job running errands for this tobacconist. So Henry knew that there had to be some sort of foul play involved again. Mr. Elgar's letter was from Edward himself. And while it did look like Edward's handwriting, the wording was really awkward and overly formal, which led Henry Jones to the opinion that it had been dictated to him under some sort of duress. The contents indicated that Edward had taken a position at sea. He had, according to this letter, joined the Royal Navy and was headed to the United States. In addition to the odd tone of the letter, it was signed Edwin rather than Edward, which uh, invited further suspicions. Yeah, there's uh, there are some theories that he did that purposely to try to, like, signal his family or the tobacconist to know that this was not his real uh, message. We don't know for certain. Uh, Henry went to the Home Office. So that is the United Kingdom ministerial department that handles immigration and matters of law and order. And he was hoping that they would investigate or at least follow up in some way on Edward's disappearance. But because of these letters that claimed that Edward had willfully taken a position on a ship of his own volition, Henry Jones was told that there was simply nothing to be done. There's nothing to investigate. Your boy just left. Whether there was any validity to the idea that Edward had run off of his own free will or whether he was secreted away by some conspiracy to keep him away from London and Queen Victoria. Once again, all this speculation kept the press busy. And the log of the frigate Warspite, which Edward said he had boarded, did have an Edward Jones uh, in the logbook traveling with the ship to New York and then back to Portsmouth and that he had been promoted during the course of the journey to first-class boy. When the war spite returned to Great Britain, Edward wasn't allowed to go ashore by himself. He was watched by senior crew members and could only leave the ship if he was escorted. During one of these chaperone visits uh, to the shops at Portsmouth, he got away from his keepers, though, and he could not be found. Yeah, he apparently went into a shop... 
but never came out. And it took a while. And then when the other crew members that were supposed to be watching him went in and were like, hey, that guy came in. And they said, oh, yeah, he asked if we had a back door. And we didn't think anything of it. And he just left. <laughs> Which seems like the most obvious. Like, yeah, you are, a, you are a poor guardian if your only job is to keep an eye on a person and you just kind of let them walk through a building and out the other side and go. Uh, Edward, of course, turns up again. But before we get into that and how it played out, let's take a break and have a word from one of our sponsors. So to get back to our story, uh, the authorities were alerted to the escape, but there was simply no sign of Edward Jones. That is, until someone spotted him at his parents' house a couple of weeks later. Once again, he had walked home, though this time he was actually trying to be stealthy rather than not having any money to afford a train. So from Portsmouth to London is about 64 miles. That's a little more than 100 kilometers. So it was a much shorter walk, but still substantial. Edward was apprehended by police and, according to police, seemed to be just resigned to whatever punishment was coming he was sent back to the war spite quite quickly. It seemed like no one was able to find out the story of how he had ended up in the Navy before he had been shipped out again. Yeah, they were really intent on just keeping him away from London and not letting him talk to the press. And information about Edward uh, abo- and his life aboard the war spite is pretty sporadic. Like, if you look at the records, there's not a whole lot going on. Because much of the time was pretty routine and without incident. From autumn of 1842 to early 1844, Edward really all but vanished from the record other than standard manifest listings. He reappears after he went overboard one morning in early 1844, although it remained an issue of debate as to whether he had ended up in the water on purpose or by accident. Near the end of the same year, he tried to escape by swimming to shore when the war spite was anchored off the coast of Greece, allegedly trying to see the king of the country. He was quickly taken into custody by his shipmates, and his seafaring life once again resumed. At the end of 1845, Edward Jones was transferred to another ship, the Inconstant. And then there was uh, this private discussion. There are some letters in the highest levels of the Admiralty about what to do with this young man, who had at that point been at sea for four years of forced naval service. He eventually was transferred to another ship, Harlequin, on December 31st of 1846. In the fall of 1847, Henry Jones once again made efforts on behalf of his son, this time asking the Lords of the Admiralty to please release the then 23-year-old from service. His pleas worked, and in January 1848, Edward was back home in London. And an interesting aspect of this story was a growing sympathy for Edward Jones, particularly among the working class and the poor of London. So we talked about how he had kind of become this weird folk hero to some people. But while he had always had these supporters as well as detractors, five years at that point of forced naval service after already serving two prison sentences seemed to a lot of people and a lot of newspapers to be a punishment far exceeding the crimes of the infamous Boy Jones. Like, it, it really seemed an awful lot of a repayment for these two break-ins to the, pa- or these three break-ins to the palace when he had already served time for them. But even though, at this point, he was in a position to potentially start his life fresh after being returned to London and his family, the behavior and fortunes of Edward Jones would once again turn down a less than ideal path. 
On August 24th, 1849, a young man was arrested in Lewisham when he was discovered to be carrying stolen goods, and the suspect claimed to be John Frost, a former sailor from Greenwich. During the September trial, Frost claimed that someone else had given him the items he was carrying, but he was found guilty and sentenced to a 10-year transportation sentence, meaning that he would serve time in a penal colony. And while Frost was in custody waiting for his sentence to be carried out, he was spotted by a constable who recognized him as none other than Edward Jones. His identity was then verified by several other policemen who had worked on the Boy Jones cases during the years of his repeat showings in Buckingham Palace, despite protestations of the young man who still claimed vehemently that he was in fact John Frost. Edward Jones, a.k.a. John Frost, served the next three and a half years in the Hulks. Old Navy ships that were anchored on the Thames as basically makeshift prisons. He was then shipped to the Fremantle Colony in 1853. The day after his arrival, he was released into a job as an assistant to a pie maker. This really wasn't an unusual situation for the Fremantle Colony. Prisoners who weren't considered to be dangerous were often allowed to just transition into sort of a settler status if they were willing to take an apprenticeship. And while this arrangement initially seemed to work out, uh, in the winter of 1855-1856, somewhere at the end of one year and the beginning of the next, Edward Jones returned, this time by completely unknown means, to London. In May, he was arrested yet again, this time for a burglary in which he stole only the gold sash from a major general's uniform. He once again was using a pseudonym, although not a very interesting one. He told people he was John Jones, and he served jail time again, this time being released in 1857. And this is where the trail of Edward Jones goes fairly cold, and it makes for kind of an unsatisfying end. So my apologies, listeners. Um, we know that because of a paperwork tangle, he managed to avoid being prosecuted ever for running away from his transportation sentence. And that's because the pertinent documents on that trial and sentence still all bore the name of John Frost. So there was a disconnect between John Frost and Edward Jones legally. Where he went when he became a free man is really something of a mystery. Although many things and ideas were printed in gossip papers speculating about his whereabouts. Yeah, according to those, he may have been living with his younger brother, who was fairly successful, or living on his own but supported by the brother. Uh, He didn't appear on census information as living with his parents, who were still in London. There have been some rumors as well that he took another naval commission and wound up dying at sea and that he was committed to an asylum and died there. But these stories are just completely unsubstantiated. He also may have returned to Australia. Uh, There was a man going by the name of Thomas Jones who died there on Boxing Day of 1893. At that point, he was quite an older gentleman. When he fell, uh, he was drunk to an accidental death. This same man is alleged to have told tales only when he was very inebriated of sneaking into Buckingham Palace as a boy. So some people think that that was Edward Jones, but we don't know. And Thomas Jones was buried in an unmarked grave. So we really don't know with any kind of certainty what became of this very odd man. While he inspired various fictional works, all of them diverge really quickly from reality. And they just don't really offer many clues into what happened. Yeah, so this feels a little cliffhangy, but really it's like a shrug. 
We don't know. His life was such a weird series of like doing foolish things, but he didn't seem like when he was captured, he never seemed like a mustache twirling villain in the least. He was always kind of like, I don't know. Like he didn't. There would never seem to be a clear reason for his behaviors, which is uh, part of why I think he fascinates and befuddles people. Yeah, I still simultaneously, like I said before, uh, the fact that he was breaking into the Buckingham Palace and stealing garments and generally being just really creepy, like, that is not good at all. I do not condone that at all. I simultaneously feel kind of sorry for him uh, because this whatever this fixation was when he was a teenager then just followed him around for the rest of his life. Yeah, he really never recovered from it. And part of it is, you know, uh, as you said, it's really creepy. And the fact that he kept doing it even after, like, some pretty serious punishments had doled out. At that point, you're like, well, there's that part of me. It's like, you kind of brought this on yourself. <laughs> but then to be kind of kidnapped and forced into service is a whole other weird problem. It's a complicated tale. Do you have some less complicated listener mail? I do. You know what's really uncomplicated? What? My love of the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we happen to be recording this. It will be long past by the time this episode airs. But we are recording it on the birthday of the Disneyland Haunted Mansion. And just in time, I have a wonderful postcard from one of our listeners uh, who sent us a, a beautiful little piece of art from... The Wonderground Gallery, which is the gallery in Disneyland, uh, and it is a Haunted Mansion postcard. It says, hi, okay, so just to be sure, I went through three more times, so clearly liked it. Then I left back to Orlando and went to Magic Kingdom today. I checked that one, too. I mean, uh, this is from our listener, Liz, who I hope enjoyed all of those rides on the Haunted Mansion. And she says, P.S., there are several varieties of Haunted Mansion magic bands available. Oh, Liz, you're so sweet to try to enable my already problematic shopping issues. <laughs> but I did already know that. Uh, and it's a really cute little postcard. It's a darling print. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's by artist Dave Perillo, and we'll try to post that on our social media. I also um, have another thing from a really cool project. So our listeners, Caleb and Raina, uh, are both artists. They just finished a um, an installation at the Grin Gallery in Providence, Rhode Island called Fantasia, Colorado, and it was inspired in part by our uh, Red Ghosts of Arizona episode. Uh, and it, they sent us the um, the catalogs from the exhibit with a cute little note that said, Hi, Holly and Tracy. As promised, here are two copies of the catalog for the show we did all about the Red Ghost of Arizona. We hope you enjoy them. There's an interview where we... There's an interview we did that talks about our inspiration, a.k.a. you two. Thank you for the hours of entertainment and inspiration. We look forward to each new episode. And thanks also for keeping us company while we put in long hours at the studio. We hope you both have great summers. Stay curious, Caleb and Raina. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Uh, this is lovely. It's so cool. Like the fact that art kind of got catalyzed by stuff that we talked about is magical to me. Um, and it's really beautiful. You can, if you go online and you uh, do a search for Grin Gallery, 
uh, Fantasia, Colorado, you will see some pictures of the exhibit yourself, and I highly encourage you to do so. Hopefully those will still be up when this airs. This exhibit just closed like a couple days ago, so uh, I'm bummed we did not get this in time to talk about it while it was still open. But it looks really cool and amazing. There's some really, really incredible work that they did there. So thank you so much for sending those to us. And again, I'm so honored that anybody would want to make art based on stuff we talked about. I love it. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're at facebook.com slash missed in history. We're on Twitter at missed in history. We're on Instagram at missed in history. We're missed in history on Tumblr. We're missed in history on Pinterest. Just go to the socials and do Missed in History. You will find us. Uh, if you would like to research some stuff for yourself, go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in almost anything you can think of in the search bar, and you're probably going to get some pretty interesting results. You can also visit us at MissedInHistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode of the show ever, show notes for the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on, and occasional additional goodies. So come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.